Good morning and a happy Wednesday to you folks. Hump day today, and boy, have I got a challenge for you. Write a thank you note to somebody. All right, you can make yourself happier. You can nurture your relationship with the person simply by writing a thank you note, sending it by text, maybe by email, or better yet, imagine this. What if you got out a piece of paper, an envelope, or an envelope, and you wrote down a letter expressing your enjoyment and appreciation of that person's impact in your life? Now imagine sending that letter and having the person open it up in the U.S. mail. All it is is a letter thanking them for being them, for impacting your life in such a positive way that you actually sent them a thank you note. So today, I challenge each and every one of you to simply send an email, a text, or an old-fashioned letter of thank you to somebody who's impacted your life in a positive way. Because trust me, folks, one day, you're going to send one to yourself. Now let's get this Wednesday going. hump a hump a hump It's hump day, folks. It's time to play hard, work hard. Now, let's play hard. Morning show. My name is Jason Spees coming to you from Dickinson, North Dakota, in the Bakken Shale Play today. And we are at the Roosevelt Lodge here, 5 a.m., meeting with the Dickinson Press right now. And we're going to get into that interview in just a moment here. That will be our play hard portion of the morning show. And then the work hard is going to be the presentation from last night at the API event where I spoke. It's the presentation on just some of the conversations we've been having over the past 10 years here on The Crude Life and The Crude Life Media Network. Folks, Caleb is the reporter's name. Let's hand it over here. Let's get this Wednesday going. Caleb Amick with the Dickens of Press. Well, Caleb, since you're the one who's doing the interview today, we had a different morning show here on the Work Hard, Play Hard morning show. So you're up early. Do you normally get up this early? No, no? I do not. Okay. We, last night I spoke at, this is Jason Spies, by the way, last night I spoke at the API event, and uh, Caleb was there uh, from the Dickinson Press, and today we're doing an interview about a story that he would like to do uh, in the Dickinson, is it in the Dickinson Press? Or? Yes. Okay, it's not just for your personal blog? No. Okay, that's good. Hey, even better. I should probably pre-qualify these questions before I get up at five in the morning, huh? <laughs> no, I don't know. Yeah, you you might want to, yeah, because... Because people might think it might be going to a blog or something like that. But yeah. is this, is this going to be like an informative article about the API meeting? Yeah. And this is going to be kind of like the... Because it's going to be about this. Because I was doing the API thing and the API article and it just wasn't cutting it. And I just... Why is that? Because your thing was kind of the the shine and part of it. It was kind of interesting. And it's more interesting than saying API met at the Grand Roosevelt Hotel. The Roosevelt Grand mm-hmm. Hotel. And yeah. Saying that by itself is kind of boring. Good. Well, I'm glad that uh, we're perking the interest of the local paper and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, so that's the kind of the approach that you're looking at doing this, more of an informational meeting. I know last yeah. night you mentioned that uh, a lot of people your age, now you're how old? I am 25. 25, okay. You mentioned a lot of people your age have kind of a negative 
a view towards the oil and gas industry. No kidding. Yeah. Why, why is that? Well, I mean, because a lot of them are taught about things like climate change, and they're taught that... Um, when you say taught, how are they taught? What are they taught? Well, last night, I said a lot of bizarre things to you, I'm sure. Well, they're taught that there is a consensus among scientists that the whole 97% thing, which I, which I think can be proven pretty soundly to be false. Sure. And um, they're taught that. They're taught that oil people don't care about whales. They don't care about uh, all that stuff. They see stuff like Dallas or whatever. and. Mm-hmm. And the oil companies and the mining companies are always evil and always out for money. And mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of selective uh, information being put out there, that's for sure. We've got Frackleberry Hound here is just having a great time. So, okay, that, that's interesting. So, would, did you, what was your reaction to my uh, consensus science slide I had up there then? That had to be a little bit different for you because... Um, that's what really what we're talking about is consensus science to where the education that I noticed, okay, my upbringing, they never used the word consensus scientists and things like that. All of a sudden, when they started talking about the whole global cooling climate change, yeah. it was a consensus. Yeah. It was no longer science. It was consensus. So what was your thought when I brought that up last night? Well, um, I kind of figured I, I I've always I've kind of suspected like I went to Ivy Tech before I went to Taylor and I'd kind of I'd done a paper on that whole thing and I, so I kind of expected consensus science to be wrong. I mean I took a class in, at Taylor called Contempt. Okay. And we talked about how like the view currently of like rationality that like you're irrational if you hold something despite other people not holding it. Yeah. And we talked about how Albert Einstein would have been irrational in his time. And he was. So. And yeah. that was primarily because of his religion, actually. Yeah, sure. He was discriminated because of his, I think he was Jewish. And yeah. uh, there was, or was it the Jewish scientist? I forget which, how it works, but it had to do with a religion thing. And the consensus science said the theory of relativity was wrong. Sure. And it wasn't until Einstein just kept saying, well, prove me wrong. Just takes one of you. And no one ever did. It took like 10 years or whatever. And plate tectonics was another one with Pangea. I brought up that example last night. That poor guy died without ever knowing that his theory was accepted as real science. Sure. And then the probiotics guy is another guy. He was really demonized. Like out of, out of the three, he probably got demonized the worst to where I, I don't even know what happened to him. I, I, could, I discontinued reading the research. But sure. the establishment, the consensus science did not want probiotics or a conversation of it. So there's a lot of parallels with that. Um, I, I, I'm not sure how to connect with the uh, generation that's been been com- trained. They've been trained to think differently. They've been trained to think that the oil industry specifically tries to kill whales. They've been trained to think that, you know, I mean, that, yeah. you know, if a tree falls in the forest, why did the oil company do it? You know, that sort of thing. It's just everything gets blamed on them at the end of the day, which I suppose with 96% of your lifestyle relies on it. I suppose technically it can blame them, but sure. if they didn't invent plastic straws, we wouldn't have that problem, you know. But the paper straws that they that they try to use aren't that great anyway. And, mm-hmm. and that, That's a little bit unusual, though, uh, when... 
last night I had a few people come up to me afterwards and shake my hand and thank me for, for just bringing this up, which was, you know, 10 years ago when I got into this industry, it was plastic bags and straws and sure. occasional complaint about the gas price. But that was it. Now you got the president of the United States openly waging war on an industry. That's in 10 years. That's incredible to me to know that whatever happened, happened. But sure. the body of work is done, and that's where we're at today. So um, that's kind of what the message was last night. It was a little bit of a, not really a wake-up call, but just kind of a recap of, sure. guys, we need a moment to process here because personally what I think is happening. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you're old enough to, to remember a lot of these different things, but uh, there was a big industry called agriculture. Okay, yeah. There was a lot of people that now it's gotten a lot smaller, but there was a time when the farmers were revered yeah the farmers were really respected sure well then the 80s came right the 80s came and malls came and sure. one gloves you know michael jackson wearing one glove all kinds of different things and the grocery store replaced the farmer sure the average person said oh we don't need to kill those cows we'll just go to the grocery store and get some hamburger we don't you know what i mean we don't need farmers we'll just go to the grocery store i think that's happening right now in oil and gas with the light switch sure i think the light switch is just replacing the oil and gas worker because or coal even to that matter because so much of our energy comes from coal you bet um so anyway i I, again i go back to um it's a different era we're living in and we're living in an era where facts don't seem to matter as much as a, a story you know it's more about the sizzle than the steak so um that was a little bit of the message last night, too. So what questions did you have for me now that I've kind of previewed um, okay. this a little bit? Well, how, I mean, how did you get – well, you talk about being um, a journalist who is who's setting out to kind of expose the oil and natural gas industry. Uh, can you explain to me how what that was like and, and how you ended up changing your mind? And Oh, when I first got started. Yes. When I first got started in this, uh, I spent a little bit of time out here doing some due diligence. Okay. okay? I was setting up a number of different uh, media outlets. I, I had a food truck. I was going to do a food truck and then do my, my journalism from the food truck. And it was during election year, so we would have senators come by and, and do interviews. And we were on a local radio station here in Dickinson, and we had... Um, some print that was, uh, in fact, the Dickinson Press and the Bismarck Tribune were going to carry some of my, my written work because I'm a writer. Sure. And I was going to actually go into this as a multimedia journalist, okay? That was the term back in the day, mm-hmm. 10 years ago. And there was a select few that were making a living doing this. Mm-hmm. So I reached out to the New York Times. I reached out to the Wall Street Journal. I reached out to the Huffington Post because at that time, I was working at KFGO. KFGO was a regional powerhouse radio station, award-winning. I won two awards in three years there. So we had a news pedigree. And I, I saw an opening in the marketplace, okay? I didn't even care about the content as much as getting the distribution in place so that I could monetize it, right? Sure. So I just assumed, because of my upbringing, sure, we'll do the low-hanging fruit and let's just do the investigative stories against oil and gas because that seems easy and that's what the media seems to want okay yeah well i have i have a son okay he's 14 now he'll be 15 in april and at the time i think he was five maybe well it was 10 years ago nine years ago and i was an altar boy 
Okay. I was a Sunday school teacher. I I, um, I was went to a Catholic school. Okay. I hit the age of reason. I kind of left the church. Yeah. So I mean, I I've got this like yin and yang upbringing, right? Yeah. But I do have a son, and I wanted to make sure that he was raised in an environment that was uh, free of n- noise, free of uh, just, you know, that 24-hour news that's on all the time. I didn't want it. So we got rid of our TV in 2006. Okay. And also, part of my company then, I had to put together a mission plan that I wanted my son to be proud of. Okay. So I went out and did my due diligence out in the oil patch because I am a method journalist. So if I'm going to do a story on skydiving, I'm going to go skydive. Sure. Okay. If I'm going to go do a story on what it's like to be vegan, I'm going to be vegan for three weeks. And then you were a vegan. And I was. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I was for over 10 years. And because of the method journalism, I did trying to just see what that diet was like. And I liked it so much. I kept doing it because the results were so indisputable. Okay. So I went out to the oil patch, and I slept in my vehicle. I went and interviewed some homeowners, some locals, okay? I went and I I observed Highway 22 by Max Hardware here. I counted the cars over the course of a half an hour. I counted. I sat in the parking lot and counted cars, okay? Yeah. Like, whoa, this is a real issue here. I mean, you got thousands of cars in a 10-minute span here in Dickinson, North Dakota. These roads are meant for four combines a year type of thing, you know? Right. These, are, these are not roads that are supposed I started seeing real issues, and I started seeing that the oil and gas uh, industry was not the bad guys. Yeah. At all. How so? The oil and gas industry is really up front with what they are sure they're coming here to make money yeah and they are going to allow a community to have an opportunity to make money and build their community i've never known an oil and gas company not to be upfront about that okay. okay now there might be some people in the middle yeah some people at the regional the elected officials or maybe even some local people that misunderstand or misconstrued or even act differently that's not the oil and gas is fault okay that's how i look at it now that's a very easy way to look at it a very probably naive way to look at it too because i understand it's a very complex issue however i also look at that their their net positive is so much better than the negative sure and and i mentioned this last night in the presentation that look the industry's had some black marks we had exxon valdez tanker spill we had the bp explosion okay down in the gulf yeah but the industry not only reacted, they almost overreacted, overcorrected, okay? That's, that's progress. Yeah. That's, that's, that's how you, you evolve as a society, sure. okay? If you don't allow an opportunity for an explosion to happen from time to time, you don't know how to fix and be preventative so that it doesn't keep happening. Sure. Okay? Ag industry, extremely dangerous, from my understanding, it was for 10, 20 years the most dangerous industry there was, but nobody would talk about it. Really? Oh, no, you don't want to talk about that. No, there's a lot of subsidies that go into ag. And so um, when, when you've got subsidies going into a certain area, you can't point out how, how dangerous it is. Um, so I, I looked at the oil and gas industry as an industry that offers opportunity and doesn't encourage entitlement. Okay. And for me, that was beautiful. That was exactly what I wanted. I wanted, I wanted a marketplace to be rewarded for your for your honest efforts and for your uh, the merit to your work. 
Sure. And I felt that was the industry that oil and gas was. So anyway, let's hope that answered your question. Okay. Um, what do you think people? What do you think people on average? Why do you think people on average have such a negative view of the industry? Like that, oil oil people are these slimy, greedy, yeah. profit over people. So in 2014, I wrote a story for the Bismarck Tribune called uh, "Oil's Problem Is Harry the Dirty Dog." Okay. Okay. It's an old book from the uh, 60s, 50s, 70s, something like that. It's about this dog, Harry. Yeah. And he, he escapes one day, and he goes running around, and, and, and it's a dog. He just like, goes exploring. But he goes down the coal chute, and he goes to a refinery, and he comes back all dirty, okay? Yeah. And his parents get all mad, this and that. But uh, there's some pr- pretty um, memorable imagery put in my mind as a kid about the actual physical, tangible look of what oil and gas can do sure. okay jed clamp it turns around shoots the ground all of a sudden bubbling up oil okay the the, the view of the uh seagulls down in the gulf or the you know the birds that sort of thing there's a lot of um uh, imagery that is not a positive when it comes to oil and gas but on the flip side of that okay flip side of that i'm a cancer survivor okay okay wow okay i i went 18 days without food and water Okay, I, I, I contracted C. diff in the hospital, beat cancer, and then C. diff almost killed me. Okay, so for 45 days out of 60, I was in the hospital. Okay, Shoot. 18 days without food and water, hooked up to some plastic bag made in Mexico. Okay, it said made in Mexico. I called it my horchata because it was some milky substance. It was basically potassium and a few other nutrients that were hooked into my IV. I couldn't even drink water, okay? So for 18 days... Everything around me, at least 96% of it is seriously petroleum products. Wow. Keeping me alive, okay? Because I had, I had a colon cancer, and it was in my body for six to eight years, I thought, this, this cancer. Now, the reason they found it was because of uh, a colonoscopy, and you need a lot of fossil fuel products in order to, to do a colonoscopy. You need a lot of fossil fuel products to keep an emergency grid going. I think it's something like 40% of any city... Just stereotyping here. 40% of any city is devoted to emergency services. That was pre-COVID. Pre-COVID. I can't imagine what it is now. So when we look at the way that the media has allowed the conversation to to unfold, it's it's very easy to point at conspiracy. It's very easy to point at uh, hidden agendas. It's very easy to point at George Soros or Bill Gates or whoever is the yeah. money man behind it. And, and there's a lot of evidence to support it, really. You know, there is. Like, um, the Texas grid's a great example. W- why is any news outlet reaching out to Bill Gates about the Texas grid? He's not an expert in the Texas grid. I don't even think he's, he's an expert in the Seattle-Washington grid, where he's from. Right. So when you give somebody like Bill Gates... The opportunity to give his opinion and mm-hmm. present it like fact, because remember, a reporter is supposed to present fact. Right. You're supposed to report, not speculate. Yeah. Um, you're, what you're doing is you're giving the social media audience a site to source now. Yeah. So now Betty Lou gets to say, well, Bill Gates says Texas needs more wind turbines. So all of a sudden, there's a whole wasted 
conversation of a day for Betty Lou and her network, you know, because sure. Mary Joe's mad and Bobby Lou's mad. You know, it's just it's it's just more noise. It's more noise. But wasn't Wynn partially responsible? You know, I it's hard to say really at the end of the day what's going on because what it is is it's policy. Sure. Okay, it's policy. Sure. So when you talk about the California wildfires, yeah. There's a lot of evidence that says that's because of policies that have to do with the forcing of companies to go to renewables. Yeah. When you looked at, I think it's PMJ or whoever the company was out there that was the energy provider, they cut back on trimming the trees because they had to devote money towards renewables because it's more expensive. Sure. So that's ended up what happening. So now the question is, well, before they had to start diverting dollars towards renewables, they always trim the trees. Well, then they cut back on that. This happens. Okay. So when you look at what happened in Texas, when you have to start preparing the grid for certain things. Okay. Let me back up here for a second. I'm in Dickinson, North Dakota. Sure. Right. How many Teslas are in Dickinson, North Dakota? Probably none. Probably none. Right. Yeah. Probably none. <laughs> Probably none. I mean, maybe one. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe one. Let's just say four. I'll say four. I think it's zero. But I'll say four. There's a Tesla charging station. So, oh, that's what that is? Right by the City Brew Coffee, Qdoba, and um, uh, Jimmy John's, okay? There's a, dozen, there's a dozen Tesla charging stations. Who paid for that? Who paid for that? Are you telling me the developer decided, hey, I'm going to put in a dozen Tesla charging stations in a market where there's not one Tesla car and the local car dealer doesn't even sell a Tesla? For real? No. That was put in through some sort of tax subsidy that the people are paying for so Dickinson, North Dakota can have a dozen Tesla charging stations taking up parking spots. Prime parking spots, by the way. I mean... It's right across the street from three restaurants during a blizzard yesterday, and no one's parking there. Right. Because you'll get a ticket if you park in the, God forbid, Tesla parking spot that no, nobody's charging at. Sure. So same thing down in Texas. They had to prepare for certain areas of wind and solar. Because remember, a megawatt of coal is not the same as a megawatt of wind. It doesn't match up that way. It just doesn't. Okay? So you got to have some different, some different grids my understanding is, from what I knew, is that they, they're in the middle of some transitional things. Sure. And the grid is not prepared for that. Now, there's some warnings that they were given before to update their grid, and, that, and so there's going to be a whole new investigation on that. But you bet. Um, bad policy yeah. is what it is. It's bad policy because when you start redirecting... And I talked about this last night. The energy industry has been decarbonizing for 150 years on its own. And this is what I wish they would teach in schools. You know, you mentioned earlier about the whales. The energy and uh, the oil and gas industry saved the whales. Yeah. If it wasn't for the oil and gas industry, the whales would be dead because sure. we'd still be heating our homes with whale. So well, what about those who would say, well, okay, fine, but... What about oil spills? You know, we had that big oil spill in the Gulf yeah. uh, several years ago. What about we that? Did. I mean, couldn't wouldn't we prevent that by going to renewables? Might. We yeah. might. But then there's the, the simple question of how are we going to build the renewables? Because there's so much of it devoted to uh, fossil fuel. I mean, those wind turbines, what do you think they're made out of? Okay. Fossil fuels. How are they transported? So there's a lo- I held up a pen last night. 
And when I was talking to a guy, and I said, I don't want to pay four bucks for this pen. Because if you take away the plastics from this pen, and you got to start using corn plastic, that's expensive. That's really expensive, okay? People do not understand. Go buy organic food for a month. Go buy organic food for a month, okay? Now, understand that if fossil fuels go away, you're going to have to double that, okay? Sure. You're going to have to double that, okay? And so when, when I think about the bigger picture here, the, I feel sorry for the average person because I was a lot like them. I was more attitude than information. I was way more attitude than information. Renewables sound great. It's, it allows you to feel and connect with the environment. I think it's more of a religion and a cult than anything. It really is because, and I'm talking anthropologically speaking. Sure. I'm talking about the, de- if, if uh, Professor Corwin from NDSU were to talk, I bet, I bet she could explain how this movement is very much like a cult or a religion because it, can, it invites you to feel. It invites you to feel, you see, whereas the climate should be all sterile. All facts. Sure. And yes, renewables are good, and, and I think we'll get there. I do. I think solar has a lot of promise. I think solar's got a lot of promise. We cannot have a terawatt of energy storage. And I've been hearing about the terawatt of energy storage for 10 years. But now we're going to need more lithium. We're going to need more cobalt. We're going to need more rare earth minerals. And by the way, China controls 98% of the rare earth minerals. There was actually a question on my yeah. on my little sheet here. Yeah. Is that I've heard that wind turbines require wind turbines and solar panels and cell phones require really really dangerous chemi- uh really really dangerous materials that you can't harvest. It's illegal to harvest they're, in the United States. Yes, they're called rare earth minerals. Yeah. And there's several different layers involved, okay? In fact, there's there's um Lithium sure. and um, cobalt, of course, gold and silver, even. They're not rare earth minerals, but they're, they're needed, too. And there's what happens is when you watch the news, some meteorologist who answered a part-time ad in the paper sure. gives you a very simplistic answer of a very complex storm. Like, oh, it's going to be sunny, <laughs> or it's going to be rainy, okay? It's very similar to that, whereas the average person thinks like that. They think that, oh, well, the sun comes up every day. That's renewable. That makes sense. We should do that. Well, they don't understand that, you know, coal quartz is needed to, to build the, the solar panel, and they don't understand that you need certain steel and, and that the solar panels are starting to change the ecosystem in the desert, and how are you going to clean these? And the ones from the 70s, haven't even proven to be efficient over 30 years, and now they got to be replaced. Now, with wind turbines, by the way, farmers from 150 years ago were more advanced with wind energy than we are today. Really? Oh, yes, yes. Farmers from 150 years ago, they would put up a wind turbine, a windmill. There's a windmill, the old traditional Amish windmill, the Dutch windmill. So those windmills were for energy. They could power a pole barn. Oh, yeah. You could, the early ones just did it for water, okay? Right. But then they realized they could do like a pole barn or a shed. But that's about it. Sure. It, was, you know, it wasn't a lot, but it was enough. It was enough for the, maybe an hour of light during a time when they needed it or whatever the case might be. But I contend that when you look at reclamation, the amount of energy that goes in to construct it, and what you get out of it, sure. 
oh, the wind energy from 150 years ago, miles ahead of where we're at today. Today, we're just creating more problems. Iowa said no more wind turbines. Our landfills are full. Wyoming's trying to get a recycling program going, invested millions of dollars in failures, okay? There's, wind is causing more problems. In Germany, they're finding out right now that the insect population is being decimated, down 70 to 80% in areas. By the wind. By the wind turbine. Well, that's the, they don't know that, okay? President Obama, okay, this is not a political statement. He just happened to be the guy in office. He had to actually sign an executive order so that wind companies could not get sued because they've almost extinct the golden eagle in the southwest, okay? So eagles are getting killed at record numbers because of wind turbines. So much so, President Obama had to sign an executive order saying he can't sue wind companies because of it. Because they were getting held up in court so much because people were suing wind companies. Seriously? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Go look it up. This is just... These conversations, if these, if these conversations were being had, climate change wouldn't even be a thing. Sure. Wouldn't even be a thing. Sure. It's like I said last night. If climate change was on the stock market, you couldn't buy it. Because they don't give you all the information. They don't give you inf- They don't allow you sure. to look at the information. Not to verify it. Absolutely not. So it's, look, the planet's getting warmer. Sure. Humans are responsible. We are decarbonizing. We've been doing fine. If you look at the last 150 years, we've gone from wooden hay to whales to coal to crude oil to natural gas. We're down to a few, if not one, hydrocarbon. And we did it before Greta Thunberg. We did it before the Sierra Club. And I just don't understand this crash course, this, this rush that we have when the planet's a big planet. Sure. I mean, there's probably 10,000 lightning strikes this week alone. I mean, there's 1,000 every night just in Dickinson area. I mean, interview the uh, uh, forestry people. They'll tell you about the lightning strikes. Anyway, so sorry, I'm getting on my little tangent here. So um, what else did you have for me? Um, yeah. Um, what do you think about this quote from Kathy Collantine, the associate director, director of the Sarah Club's Beyond Dirty Fossil Fuels campaign? Regarding the XL pipeline, she said that no matter which project you're looking at, the facts point to the projects not being not only not needed, but a climate disaster, and the risks are unacceptable. What do you think of that? It's a very aggressive statement. A um, lot of fear into that statement. I think that um, I think I think we're having the wrong conversation when it comes to pipelines. Sure, I, I, I really do, and I think it's a very dangerous conversation we're having. I, I believe that uh, pipelines are very safe. Okay, I've done a lot of research on this. And when I take a look at the number of pipelines across the United States, it's, it's incredible. Thousands and thousands of miles. And I take a look at the number of spills and a uh, number of cracks and things. And they've got them under control pretty good compared to uh, tankers and trucks and, and a number of things. But most importantly, pipelines are con- critical infrastructure. Sure. So they're critical infrastructure. So when I listen to that, why are, why are we not talking about power lines? Sure. Why are we not talking about roads? In Minneapolis, five, six years ago, there was a bridge that collapsed, for crying out loud, with a school bus on it. And this is after there was a you know, report that 90-some percent of the bridges need to be fixed in the United States. Okay, so I'm wondering, in all honesty, let's, take a, let's talk DAPL protests for a second. 
why are the protesters not protesting the old pipelines to get fixed instead of just, oh, we don't want any new ones? So you're okay with the old ones then? The ones that were made out of clay back in the day or something like that? There's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be fixed. Sure. And to me, I would think that these protesters, these climate activists, it would behoove them and it would be better for the environment, actually, if they direct their energy towards protesting the fixing up of old infrastructure. Because if, if you really want to understand the environment, interview an engineer sometime. Sure. I mean, as boring as the engineers are being linear thinkers, right now they're shining. Because this Davis refinery out, uh, outside of Belfield here, uh, Zia Engineering out of New Mexico. Yeah. I had a really interesting conversation with him mm-hmm. about how just the, 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 the redirecting of pipes, just a little thing like that can actually cut your carbon down. It's amazing just how the engineers have figured out just some simple old school things have created a new way for emissions to be reduced. Um, so to answer your question, I think the Sierra Club's quote is to incite anger. It's to be polarizing. And I wish it'd stop. I really wish it would stop. So what do you think about the, what about the uh, Native American burial grounds? What about those claims? What do you think? Oh, I think there's some legitimacy there. Um, I think the oil and gas companies spend a lot of money with archaeological firms that probably wouldn't have a business if it wasn't for the Native American burial, burial sites. Seriously. I think that there's a lot of respect from the oil and gas industry to go above and beyond to make sure Native Americans are satisfied, that landowners are satisfied, that communities are satisfied. I've often wondered, what would an, archaeologic, what would an archaeologicalist do? An archaeological company, what would they do without a government hiring them to go survey a land or an oil and gas company hiring them to go survey the land? I, I don't know. I'm yeah. asking a serious question. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, and I am. And so when I look at that, I, I, I think it's fantastic that the oil and gas industry embraced hiring archaeological companies to go survey lands before they put in a pipeline or they put in a well pad. Yeah. I think it's great. And I wish that the uh, uh, climate activists and some of the Native American activists would also embrace or acknowledge that that's happening. I don't know as far as what they find or anything beyond that. I don't know that. I've interviewed a number of archaeologists, and it's fascinating. I mean, from, from the uh, stone circle graves they have to just some of the artifacts they found, but mostly it's some of the fossils. They're finding more fossils than anything. Some, you know, uh, back when Lake Agassiz was here, they have little single troglobite-type things from the ocean and everything. So it, it's interesting, you know. So you're getting a lot more than just the Native American history and 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 respect out of it you're getting some of the you know the old triassic and jurassic and some of those other asic names that i don't know so sure. um i don't know if i answered the question or not but yeah it's an answer <laughs> uh, there are a lot of uh, i'm gonna talk about uh, fracking next i think uh, yeah. there are a lot of fears surrounding things like fracking you know people are like well we're gonna run out of uh oil and natural gas or exacerbate climate change and so on what can you say to that crowd what what if I got a controversial view on this. Okay. I do. So it's it's not very well accepted in the industry. Right. And it's not very well accepted outside the industry. Okay. So I'm kind of alone on this one. Well, I got I got 
certain segments that agree with me, but I don't know if they do in, in big company. But so when I the first year I was in this, uh, when I started covering this back in 2012, this might have been 2013 and in, in the first part of it, I went out to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. They have yeah. this big energy summit there every year, like Fed, Federal Reserve people come in and all these big. It's like a rare albino elk sighting of people. All right. And the first speaker, the guy who kind of led the show off, and I, I forget his name, I apologize, but he was a heavyweight in the industry. He said, and I'll never forget this because I totally agreed with him. He said that, uh, you know, if we were to give Madison Avenue a million billion dollars to go and figure out the worst word possible that we could use as an industry, they would have came up with the word frack. And we did it to ourselves for free. And I thought about that because I've never heard that word in a positive way. Yeah. So you fracture your bone, you fracture a dam, you fracture a relationship. So there's a lot of ways that that word has been used for children, young adults, college adults. You see, I mean, through, throughout your life, you do hear that word. Yeah. Through fractured relationships, fractured a bone, mostly fracture a bone. That's yeah. a breaking of the bone, but now you're out for two weeks, so you're, you know, you're not happy. A lot of negative thoughts that go with that. Well, the oil and gas industry is almost to a fault, it's too honest. They're very, very technical, okay? And so it's, you're, you're, you're fracturing rock. It's, 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 the, it's the easiest thing there is, and it's, a, it's actually a cool word. Yeah. I mean, if, if you put that into sports or you put it into pro wrestling, oh, it's really cool. The frack attack, you know, it's, it's really neat. So what we did was, okay, we were finding out that just even having this conversation within the industry, they did not like that. Yeah. So, okay, that made it hard because you got to pick your battles here. I, I don't want to tick off people in the industry here, but at the same time, I can't turn my back on something I know is a problem. So the, the word fracking, you would want to change? Oh, I've wanted to change it for a long time. Okay. Absolutely. What would you change it to? Well, I don't know that. You know, I just don't know that. Um, you know, my morning show partner, Sterling, who grew up in Dahran, Saudi Arabia, on yeah. an oil and gas base, he likes the word freedom juicing. Freedom juicing. Yeah, and you know, but he, he says it's snarky and, and joking, but I get what he's saying. It's almost like you need to change it to freedom juicing to take it away from the word frack, okay? Um, Frackleberry Hound is the name of our mascot. That opened my eyes to where people smile now when they see that. Okay. Okay, they, they, they hear that and they, they, they laugh. I got an email just the other day. They're like, oh, Frackleberry Hound, genius. And all it is is just a, a way to have an icebreaker that is positive. Sure. And it's worked. It's worked. Um, so I, I don't know the answer to that because I'm, I'm not, um, I don't feel qualified to answer that. Sure. Because I'm not, you know, that in with the industry, I guess. I'm not, you know, I'm, they don't look at me as one of their top leaders. So I, I, whatever I would say, they would probably just scoff at anyways. But I do think that a different word would be appropriate. I think that an extraction word or maybe harvesting or, you know, they use those words already. So it's, it's, it's different, you know. It's, um, it's not, not unusual, by the way. It's not unusual to change the, the terminology, I mean, it's, it's, it happens all the time sure. with, with things. So, um, yeah, I, I do wish they would change that word. I do. Yeah. Do you think fracking of natural gas, uh, in your opinion, do you think fracking of natural gas maybe is, is good for the environment? Because there was an article in the Financial Times that back in 2012 that said that 
fracking that uh, taking natural gas out of the earth actually lowered CO2 emissions. So what do you think about that? Do you think that it's a good thing for the environment? I, I think the oil and gas industry has done a terrific job of bringing new environmental innovations into sure. our, our world. Like what? I think um, the way that they've been able to reduce flaring okay. uh, by turning it into liquid natural gas. I think that uh, obviously just most of our products that we've created. Okay, so, uh, answer your question. Um, no, you can, you can keep going. That's no, great... I, I know. I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to think how to answer this because it, it's, it is a difficult question because it's a very complex issue. Okay, the environment is very complex. Sure. The oil and gas industry is extremely complex. Like up here in the Bakken, we've got wet gas, okay, wet gas. Down in Texas, they got dry gas. There's two okay. different, totally different types of natural gases. Over in the Marcellus, it's, it's like five feet below the Earth's surface, 10 feet below the Earth's surface, okay? It's not very far down. You go to the Bakken, you got to go two miles below the Earth's surface. So it's, it's very different. Down in Alabama, it's all muddy and clay. So the fracturing there, you got to be close to 100 bucks so you can just really pop it out in that muddy clay type stuff. So it's just... It's, it's a different, complex question, and the only way I know to answer it is to say that who does know how to handle the environment, okay? Because when I take a look at what the oil and gas industry has done, it's easy to point the fingers and say all these other things, but did you know 90% of the oil discovered in the ocean was because of seepage, Okay. So if we did not pull that oil out, what, it would still just be seeping in the ocean? And that's natural. Should we, so is that something that we should allow? Or because we have the tools and the knowledge to extract that out of the ocean so that it doesn't get on the creatures? Yeah. I mean, I don't hear any arguments like that. Another controversial theory that has never been disproven is abiotic oil. You know about abiotic oil? I have no idea. Okay, no. so abiotic oil is an old theory. I haven't heard much of it lately, but it's that the earth regenerates oil. So there is no peak oil. Okay? So the way, the way it works is that everything that happens on the earth goes down to the core, gets dissolved into all of its separate atoms and mo- molecules in the periodic table, goes back up to the earth's surface, and in the mantle... You, the building blocks of oil is created, and then it gets to the plates and the, and the tectonics or whatever, and then the oil comes. Abiotic. It's a self... Uh, um, um, it's, a re- it's a renewable energy source. It's a renewable energy source. Absolutely. Thank you. And, and, so, and you can look that up. That's, okay. a, that's a great... I, I love abiotic oil, but again, that's, that's a, it's a very controversial scientific uh, theory, but it's never been disproven. So... And if so, do you think that maybe if that could be disproven, do you think a lot of this whole thing with wind turbines and solar and all that would be pretty much dissipated? Or I don't even know if that I you know we're so far along on the wind and solar that I'm not sure okay. what we're going to look like in ten years because um, 
there's going to be some really hard crash cores of reality coming. I think hydrogen is going to be the one that's going to win in the end. Um, I think I think you're going to have, first of all, fossil fuels are never going to go away because of this plastic cup and because of, you know, Lunchables. Kids are going to want to, parents are going to want to have a plastic film over their Lunchables before they eat it. People, sure. are, people are going to want a, are you going to want to reuse a flu vaccine needle? Are you going to want to reuse no. a COVID vaccine needle, or do you want a plastic one that you can throw away and dispose of? So we're always going to have a place for, for the oil and gas. Now, whether that's going to be NIMBY, not in my backyard, you know, that's, I think that's where the way that the um, climate activists are trying to get it going is that push all the oil and gas development out of sight. Because up in Canada, they're still doing coal, but... It's only, you know, 70 miles from the coast in British Columbia, so they can send it over to China. They don't do it for their country, but they'll send it over somewhere else. You know, that type of thing. I think you're going to see a little bit of this shell game of energy happening. Um, I wish, though, the subsidies for renewables would stop. I really do. It's, it's inflating the market. You've got communities bragging about these renewable energy rates without including the subsidies. So you're just going to get $10 million a year to bring your energy bill down, and then that's how you're going to count your, your net rate going forward to customers? Sure. I, I don't, that, that's bizarre to me. The, only, the, the last true stewards of the land, really, um, were probably the Native Americans. And they were really aggressive. They were really aggressive. Okay, so when like, we came over here on the Mayflower, we didn't understand we saw some, what we saw was not what we're used to. Okay, N- Native Americans they did control burns because they understood that if you allowed a forest to stand still, it would have so much decay and dead dead wood throughout time that when a lightning strike happened, it, it was so hot it would sterilize everything. It would just burn up the whole forest. It would burn up the whole thing. But not only would it burn it, it would sterilize it. Okay, and that's important because now. You, you need bird poop. You need wind to repopulate this stuff. So all of a sudden now you took out all your native flora. And then everything goes. In fact, Native Americans almost drove the bison and elk to extinction. But they did that on purpose. They did that on purpose because they needed the fresh grass and they needed the fresh, the, the, the fresh flora in order to sustain themselves. So they, they were very aggressive, but they respected it more than anyone. And I mentioned last night Alton's, Alton Chase's book on playing God with Yellowstone. I invite everybody to go read that book because it explains how we do not understand the environment. We think we do, but we don't. And when we think we do, we, we make it worse. Sure. And right now, we're changing the ecosystem in deserts. Okay? Yeah. They're finding out that all these solar panels are changing the ground underneath. It's actually it's, it's creating big problems now. So anyway, cool. what else we got? Okay. Um, let's see here. Early morning, man. I got some coffee in me. Ha. Huh. So in your opinion, based on your research, what, do you, what makes something truly good for the environment? But I think you just already answered, you just answered that, that we don't know what's really good for the environment. I, th- I think most people have a natural instinct. What is? You know, when you talk to most people, they want to recycle. Okay, they want to. But when you do your research, yeah. we're actually causing more problems with our recycling. Really? Oh, yes. So if you don't wash your recyclables out, you can't do anything with them. 
Okay, so they get shipped over to Thailand. They get shipped over to China. Some old Asian woman over there is washing bottles. I mean, go do the research on that. They've got pictures of just mountains of American plastic. Okay? Yeah. Where is it, no. It's all the planet of platitudes. Say a few good things. Get in your pl- private jet and fly home. You know, say maybe buy a Prius so your housewife or your, your, your maid can drive the Prius around or your daughter or something like that. It's, uh, so how, how, how do I, I think that if we got rid of a lot of the climate activism, I think the environment would be taking care of itself just fine. This is a big planet, okay? Yeah. I mean, like I said, go, thousands of lightning strikes a night, earthquakes every day, hurricanes every week. This is not the end of the world. This is the world. It's a sure. big, resilient planet. So I mentioned the, the formation of Pangea, or the deformation of Pangea last night to where we are today. Every time there's an earthquake, a volcano, it puts millions and billions of tons of CO2 into the atmosphere. Okay. So when you've got these giant plate tectonic cracks and all of a sudden, that's putting gas out in the environment. Getting back to your natural gas question, you know, yeah. about us taking it out. There's a great example right there. Um, so I think, actually, humans as a whole have done a great job over the last 150 years decarbonizing ourselves. Because we, we know people don't want to live in a world that's killing itself. They just don't want to. Sure. But at the same time, we don't want to live in a, in a world of nonsense either. And we're going to more towards the nonsense way, in my opinion. We really are. So you, you said in your talk yesterday that about all of the models within the past 10 years, the climate models have been wrong. Actually, would, 50 years, but go on. Okay, but what would you say... What would you say to those who would say, yes, but look at how we've been able to take care of the Earth as a result... And it may not have been exactly correct, but at least it gave us a push in the right direction. What would you say to those people? I would say that we were already going in that direction, and a lot of poor leaders like to jump on a movement that's already happening. Sure. Okay? And I think that's what happened with the climate, okay, is that whether it's Al Gore or whether it's the people behind him, um, that was already happening. And I, and I mentioned it before, when, when you take a look at hay and wood all the way to the natural gas, we've been reducing our carbon molecules. We've been innovating. And so the first part of that question is, is that I think there is a group of people that like to jump on a momentum and act like it's theirs. And then they start trying to direct ship. And this is where I say we got to pull back because this crash course they want us to go on costs trillions and trillions of dollars. And I think we'll get there. I really do. I think we'll get there anyway. I, I, this crash course they want us on, we were already going that direction. Okay? Solar panels were happening in the 70s. Right. A lot of oil and gas workers have solar panels, actually. <laughs> really? They do, of course. They're not idiots. They like to save money. If it's economical, it works. Right. But they also have a propane stove. And they also, do you see what I mean? They're not doing all of it. They're, 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 they're supplementing certain areas that make sense. All right. Solar, the best thing solar has, by the way, for my whole lifetime, I was told that by the time I was in my 40s, and I'm in my 40s now, my shingles were going to be made out of solar panels. Okay. That we were going to have solar panels on our roofs and energy was going to be free. I barely have a good camping battery charger. 
Okay, I mean, I, honestly, that's probably the best thing solar has. That's economical for the average person. All right. What was the other part of your question? I'm sorry. Um, oh, what would you say to those who may? Uh, they were just, just like I'm saying, look how we've been able to take care of the earth, even though the models have been wrong. The models. Okay. If I take this glass yeah. and I drop this glass, okay, and explain that I'm at the uh, Roosevelt Lodge in Dickinson, North Dakota on this date, yeah. and I send it to a thousand laboratories across the world, within a very precise a- uh, number, they're going to tell me how quickly that's going to hit the ground. Okay. They might want to know if the air conditioner's on, just because that might change the velocity of the speed. But even then, they're going to, within a precision, all thousand of those scientific laboratories are going to tell me, some, say, Space Needle, if I drop a penny off the Space Needle, they're going to tell me within a precision of the damage and, and the, the actual physics behind that, okay? I, I think that's very safe to say. I feel very comfortable saying that. Right. No one can do that with climate change. Not one person can tell me five years from now, 10 years from now. Right. I get a, it's all different. So that tells me the science isn't good enough. Sure. It's not good enough. We don't allow this type of stuff in drug studies. No. We don't allow this unverified science data reporting in any other industry. Why do we allow it in climate change? Right. What we're talking about here is the future. We're talking about the future. And what really irritates me is we have like a third of the planet without water, without clean water. Yeah. A good portion of the planet doesn't have power. That's before the Texas issues, okay? We have real problems right now, yet we have the majority of our leaders and the planet now worried about 100 years from now instead of the people that need our help right now. I think it's dangerous, and I think it's irresponsible. Sure. I think it's reckless. As, as a species, as a human species, to do what we're doing with this cult of environmentalism and this movement. we I, I mean, there's part of me that thinks that they're just trying to replace religion within the environment. It's become the new secular religion. Well, it totally is. Absolutely it is. It's, when you look at it, what we've done is we've, we, they, they set up the earth like the Garden of Eden, and we've ruined it with our original sin. I mean, it's almost the same storyline. Yeah. It's, it's really... Sure. scary it really is so boy this is an odd conversation before 6 a.m i mean it's also <laughs> it's also about our it's actually after 6 a.m oh now. good that's right okay but it's also yeah, about man. like it, i mean they even have trouble predicting within the day like yesterday on accuweather my accuweather app it said no precipitation within 60 for the next 60 minutes and it was blowing snow like crazy. What's interesting about that is you're talking about the weather. Yeah. And we're talking about the climate. And that's the weather is actually predictable. The climate is not. And so they can't even predict the weather. Right. And the climate is totally something completely different, you and know? The climate is measured in, in a way sort of kind of by, by the weather, like how... Weather the, patterns the, and stuff like that over a consistent period of time. Correct. The weather is part of it, Did absolutely. You, but there's so many other elements that, that play into it that right. we don't even know. Like Richard Lindzen from MIT talked about how we don't even know. We haven't even fully figured out what clouds do yet. No. So, And they do have an effect in, in the climate and temperatures. and in, in Kindred, North Dakota. I'm sorry, Davenport, North Dakota. It's a, a small town outside of Fargo. They have a cloud seeding company, a company that flies up and seeds clouds so it rains. You're kidding me. 
Oh, no, that, that, that's a business that's been around for a long time. They put seeds in clouds? I, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they do it, but it's, they call it cloud seeding. You go and you, you make it rain by seeding the clouds. That's so cool. So I, I know, but that's about as unnatural as you can imagine no kidding. the climate. So, but whatever. Hey, but, but that's and that's <laughs> but that's also got to add up a little bit though too. Like, like I think the Earth is kind of as as a set has a pretty good set pattern. I guess I you know weather. Again, I go back to this. The, the Earth is pretty resilient. Sure, we're a big. It's a big planet. Sure, and. We're when they're like the great prophet George Carlin said, when the earth's done with us, just shake us off like a bad case of fleas on a dog. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's a big planet and ain't going anywhere. You know, we are. He said it used to be. He said, it, I remember him, the skit that he had. He said, this environmental thing is pretty much it's not about the earth. It's about no. us. It's about control. It's about us, yeah. Yeah, it's about controlling. It's about absolutely. And uh, Senator Kramer was on our program a few weeks ago, the governor of uh, Wyoming, Mark Gordon, and they both said the same thing, that this is more about controlling your lifestyle, controlling your pocketbook more than anything. And the climate, you can do that. You can do that, okay? Because it's everything, everything. Your toaster in the morning, climate. Your coffee maker, climate. Everything. This, this cup. How many cups can I have in a day? That sort of thing. There's, we're going to be very closely tracking on our phones quick, either through COVID or through climate change. So there, there's, this is a change that's coming, and it's happening so fast that the people who are in the herd mentality haven't even taken the time to actually ask themselves how it's going to impact them. You know, I was joking last year. What did I call the environmental? Because we changed it to climate activists now, but the Keurig drinking cell phone texting environmentalist, you know, because cell phones are the worst polluter on the planet, actually. Seriously? Oh, yeah. It's a threefold pollution. They're, um, the, the, the rare earth minerals needed, so the mining and sure. the manufacturing, and then uh, the actual data centers. So the data centers need a ton of air conditioning, and they produce a ton of heat. So every text that uh, an environmentalist, quote-unquote, climate activist, they're actually causing more problems than good. So, I mean, it's just you can't make it up. Well, they sit there and sip their Keurig coffee, you know, and, and put out their, their uh, plastic plates while they have their meetings. I mean, you can't make it up. I mean, in all honesty, it's very difficult to have a conversation with someone like that. Yeah. And, and that's why I was trying to tell the industry last night that if you give somebody facts who doesn't want facts, it doesn't work. It's like talking to a teenager. Sure. They're, they're just going to do what they want anyways. So. So, um, so tell me about your, in, in, uh, your industrial forest and yeah. why, why, uh, why do you think that matters and who's behind it? So the industrial forest, uh, I, I'm behind it, but uh, there's a number of other people behind it too as well and about 10 years ago it was eight years ago i guess because after the first year i i, I kind of did this um i i really wanted to plant some trees yeah so i and i adopted a highway back in 2004 and i've i've done a lot of environmental things throughout my whole life because i i really like being outdoors mm -hmm. all right and I like gardening. 
And um, hang on one second here. I see there's a climate activist around. Frackleberry Hound is getting her her growl on. So when I took a look at some of the things that we could do, I came up with this forest idea. And originally it was just planting trees with a big community event. And I went and I pitched it around a little bit and it didn't get much traction. Well, then I kind of, I read an article put out by Clemson University mm-hmm. about their research had shown that over half the trees that were planted in the last 20 years died. So all the nonprofits that were planting trees and all, all the, and this is really important, all the municipal programs, okay, so the city run ones, about half the trees were dying. And they didn't understand certain trees didn't work in certain soils a number of years ago. So they had that learning curve and growing pain. And then a lot of the uh, nonprofits, once they took their Instagram or Facebook photo, they'd move on. So they just plant the tree and move on. Oh, God will take care of it. Mother Earth will take care of it. Well, it doesn't work like that. It works like that when it's a seed. It doesn't work like that when you just put it in there. There's transplant shock. There's lack of watering, a number of different things, special interests. So... We found out that we, we could come up with a pretty good solution here. And the solution is this, that trees need to be watered every day for three years mm-hmm. after being planted. And then once a week for the next two years after that. All right. So we said, well, industry can build a sustainability shed very easily. I mean, we've got all the tools to do that. And then I, I went as far as thought, boy, we could automate this, get drones involved and all kinds of different things. But I just scaled it back and I thought, okay, if we build a sustainability shed with some water, either through a cistern system, depending on where we're at, or possibly a pump, okay, for like a well. And then you think of the old plunger system, right? The dumbwaiter plunger system. Once the water reaches a certain level, it fills back up. Sure. But then we've got a critical pipeline system hooked up to the sustainability shed, so all the trees get water, okay? And the industrial forest is really more of a permaculture, and it's an educational process as well. So there are seven layers to a forest, and we're going to incorporate all seven layers. And we got the mayor of Bismarck on board. He loved it. I just kind of casually told him about it one day after an interview, and he said, Jason, I want Bismarck, North Dakota to plant the first tree. He goes, I will do everything in my power to make this happen. And now next week, we're going to go meet with his forestry department. And then the state of North Dakota now wants to get involved, too. So they're, they're not going to, the, the forest is not going to be headquartered there, right? No, oh no, we're going to do 50 of them. Okay. We're going to do 50 forests. And it's going to be a network of forests. So we're, we're going to take the intellectual property we take with one into the next. And we're going to let their community kind of go with it. Down in Texas... In between Midland and Odessa, meeting with Brooks Landgraf, state representative down there, he's kind of spearheading it. Um, we're going to try to get a forest built with recycled frack water. Okay. So we've talked with uh, a couple chemists down there, and they think it's possible. They think it's possible. So if there's a way that we can get oil and gas companies to drop off frack water once a week or once a month or whatever to go fill up these sustainability sheds with water, and all of a sudden that puts a bunch of uh, shade, we're going to call it the shade park in, in, in the desert, you know. In Bismarck, it's going to be a walking education park. Mayor wants to put a big old piece of lignite coal right when you walk in with uh, laser engraved the story with all the sponsors right there. I, I'm like, you get it. 
you get it. This is exactly what we want. We want bigger than life. We want something that's going to educate. We don't want playground equipment. We want people to walk. We want people to journal. We want people to enjoy and connect with nature. Each tree that is sponsored by industry will have a stone engraved marker next to that tree. So we're actually hiring people, artists, mixed media industrial artists. Imagine that. The oil and gas industry is paying artists now. And you saw that spreadsheet we have or that, that pie chart that shows where all the different dollars go. Mm-hmm. And we felt it was very important to point out last night that we're not making money on this forest here. We're, we're actually kind of, I think it's like 10% margin we have. It's, and that's just more or less to cover some incidentals. But we're paying people rather than asking them to volunteer. We'll get the community to help volunteer and when we do the big party. Mm-hmm. But the people behind the scenes, right now, people need to be paid. They don't need to be people are doing too much free stuff right now in, in, right. in the world. And we need to, even if it's 10 bucks for a day or whatever it is, you know, it's just something to make them feel good. So the forest is here to be a carbon capture. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's to be an educational awareness piece, but also it's supposed to be a very good branding marketing piece for industry. So at the end of the day, we've got ESG certifications we're giving out, a website, a whole network of forests, big old signs, you know. And by the way, the one in Bismarck is a micro-industrial forest to the five-acre one we're going to have out in the state. So each one of these forests will be five acres. So uh, has it been built yet? Oh, no. No, we're still, we're still getting sponsors. Yeah, it'll, it'll be uh, September 2021. Could you let us know? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Because we want to get ahead of the Bismarck. Come on. We want to get ahead of the Bismarck Tribune, so would you please let us know? Well, just do it right now. You're uh, already ahead of them. All right. Anytime you want to do a story, you're ahead of them. Okay. So <laughs> when... We'll do it, do it so, next month. So we'll do the, it next month. So next month. Yeah, we'll do a story next month. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, could Mayor Scott Decker sponsor an industrial forest for Dickinson, and how much would that cost? Actually, uh, we're in talks with a outfit just right outside of town. Seriously. And for the five-acre one. Yep, okay. For the five-acre one. Yes. Uh, any community that wants to be. We actually have a major city, a top 50 market that's on a waiting list now. Okay. Mm-hmm. In Ohio. Wow. Major city in Ohio. So there's three, right? Maybe four, three. One of those cities in Ohio is already on our waiting list because we were going to do five this year, but it was too much. So we just scaled back to two. We scaled back to two. We're going to do it in Texas, and we're going to do it in North Dakota. And then we're going to take that template, and we're going to take about 80% of it into the new communities. And like the one out in Ohio, it's the guy who's in charge of the sustainability office. He he reached out to me on LinkedIn, actually. And he said, I love this. We want to be next. I said, absolutely. This would work great because now if we're going to announce what communities we're going in, that makes us like the Super Bowl. That makes us like, you know, some sort of big event. And that's what we want to happen. We want this to take on a life of its own. By the way, we're, we're like, we haven't gotten anybody, the operators, to say yes yet. They've all said no. They've operators? All, oh, yeah. The oil and gas company, they tabled it. So we, we've had to go to different routes to do this. Why is that? Uh, you know, budget, uh, tabled it, uh, the nonprofit, you know, cause we're not a nonprofit. And, um, because actually one of the problems is nonprofits are not, they're causing the problem. 
They're not taking care of the. They're not thing. taking care of the problem. So, you know, it, it was interesting because you know, just I'm just going to throw out a few numbers. Like, because we were not a nonprofit, we couldn't get like say five thousand dollars, but they'd give us a hundred thousand if we were a nonprofit. So, so it's kind of like a mon- money scheme in a way. What we're trying to do is fix a couple problems. Right. We're trying to fix this environmental industry problem. We're also trying to fix the nonprofit problem. Sure. There's a lot of problems in nonprofits. No kidding. There's a lot of profit problems. Yep. So what's next for the crude life? Crude life. Well, we've got a morning show now. So we added that and we added the forest and that's enough for this year. Uh, we, we do speaking. We do uh, writing for magazines, uh, n- newspapers from time to time. Uh, our morning show is new this year. And the reason we did the morning show is because everybody and their brother has a podcast right now. So, yeah. Um, in fact, uh, I, <laughs> I was joking last night at my, my presentation that... I was uh, kind of consulting a guy down in Texas about whether he should do a podcast or not, this and that. And I said, listen, man, everybody has a podcast. Ron Burgundy has a podcast. He's a made-up character, and he's got a podcast. And I bet he gets more listeners than I do. you know. And then I walked out on my deck, and I said, listen, that guy's got one. That guy, I'm just pointing at backyard neighbors, not even across the street, just backyard neighbors. And within an eyesight of my backyard, I counted six podcasts, okay? So we had to do something different, mm-hmm. you know, because all of a sudden, you know, we're on the radio and yeah. we do writing, but nobody cares. It's all podcasts now, okay? It's all podcasts. So we came out with a daily podcast and we wanted to do something a little different because the industry, and this is every industry, is becoming very siloed, very siloed, okay? They're, as, as we're more connected, we're less connected. People sure. are less available now, okay? Sure. Uh, COVID, it made it really less available. And when that happens, when you start closing your world down, you're building silos. And we're trying to, ex- we're trying to outreach, okay? Mm-hmm. So we actually got a morning show partner who's never worked in oil and gas, never worked a day in oil and gas, mm-hmm. but he grew up in Dahran, Saudi Arabia, 20 years he lived there. So he went to elementary school there. His comic books would have black Sharpie markers in it because its government would censor things. He, they didn't get the Sports Illustrated edition of the swimsuit edition because that was too much for Saudi Arabia. And like, see, he was texting me the other day. He goes, check out this comic from, you know, he had, he had a Thor comic book where three of the cells on one page were completely Sharpied out. That's how his upbringing was. So here's a guy whose wife works for Starbucks. Can't get any more liberal than that, um, jokingly. And here he's never worked a day in oil and gas, but he's got more respect for oil and gas than almost anybody I've ever met because he understands every experience he has is because of the oil and gas industry. So Dahran, for those people listening out there or for your knowledge, is an oil and gas city. It's in Saudi Arabia. It started with a couple trailers in the desert, and now it's got golf courses and schools. It's a big big city where 100% of the people who live there are employed by the oil and gas company. Wow. That includes the teachers. That includes the local Quickie Mart worker. uh, They all are brought over and employed by the oil and gas. That is a literal oil and gas community. You think Watford City's an oil and gas community. They got some ag there. Not yeah. in Dahran, man. Even the, even the police work for the oil and gas companies. So it's funny because here is a guy who's never worked a day in the oil and gas industry but has more respect and understanding about the industry than probably anybody who's worked there for 10 years. Interesting. Just a different perspective. It's, it's a refreshing perspective. So. Okay. 
that's what's next for us. And uh, what's next for Jason Spees? What's next? For, the forest is next for me. Okay. Um, I'm actually I'm, I'm putting some pieces in place with the crude life to uh, step away a little bit. Uh, I've got some uh, personal writing that I'm going to get to. I'm, I'm a writer by trade, so yeah. I've, got a, I've got a book that's been finished three years ago that I need to get edited and out, and we're going to do it in an episodic way. So I, I'm always trying to do something different. And the last book I did calls Cancer's a Bitch, and it's available on Amazon, and it talks about my cancer. And that was more of an e-book, a 75-page half-hour read meant for someone to be read in the you know while they're sitting next to somebody in the hospital and my next book is going to be a little bit more um uh non-business non-oil and gas so i I have that to work on and have the forest that i have to work on as well but the forest will be my next project uh we've hired a gal from belfouche uh spearfish to do some more uh, reporting for us. She just interviewed Doug Burgum last week. Um, I think she's got, um, well, she had Christy Craddock the week before that, Texas Railroad Commissioner. So she's doing great. She's got a fantastic voice. Uh, mother of three in her early 30s. So just she's perfect for, for the crude life. Um, so we're going to keep moving with the crude life. And then we're also, I'm consulting a, a new media outlet that should be launched in the next week that's going to be a little bit more of investigative journalism. Okay. And I don't know much on that right now, so I don't disclose anything outside of just that's what's going on, I guess. I'm just consulting on that. Um, how can people listen to your podcast, and how can they reach you? We're available at all the popular podcast forums like uh, iHeartRadio and Google Play and Apple Podcasts. But the easiest way is just go to thecrudelife.com and... We have it right there. You can listen to it right right on the website, or you can go on one of the links to one of the mini apps that you might have. And uh, the way we do it is we have this morning show, but then each interview, so like this interview right here, we do that in isolation too. So that way, if you just want to listen to the interview, you can just listen to the interview. You don't, you don't have to listen to Sterling and I having fun, <laughs> whoever, our reindeer games. So... Is that it? Yeah, I think that's it, Mr. Speeds. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you, sir. Interested in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com. Music heard on the Crude Life Morning Show, Play Hard, Work Hard, is by the Moody River Band. The Crude Life, Play Hard, Work Hard, is sponsored in part by... If you have natural gas leases and are looking to sell them, Swan Energy wants to talk to you today. Give them a call at 866-539-0860. That's 866-539-0860. Swan Energy is buying up natural gas leases, and they may buy yours, too. Give them a call today. 
the industrial forest. It takes an industry to build a forest. Hey folks, Jason Spies with The Crude Life. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out theindustrialforest.com. That's theindustrialforest.com. Play hard, work hard. Now, let's play hard. I wasn't really quite sure what to talk about tonight. By the way, my name is Jason Spies. I'm with the Crude Life as well as the Industrial Forest, and I'll talk about that a little bit later on because that's what we're going to end with. But First, I just kind of want to give you an overview of the crude life and how we came about and where we're at today. And I guess our path was a little bit different than the average oil and gas company because uh, we, we went uh, a different direction than going to a lot of industry events for a few years. We decided to do some non-industry outreach and we learned a lot. We learned a lot about how the industry uh, is perceived by non-industry people. So. I'd like to talk a little bit about that today, I guess. So first of all, the crude life. What we are is uh, we're actually a platform for industry. And by industry, that means the population because if you use a toothbrush in the morning, you're part of the industry. If you drive your car, you're part of the industry. If you have heat in your house, you're part of the industry. That's how we look at it at the crude life. For example, when I was living in Dickinson here, uh, we looked at the cafe owner as part of the industry. They actually knew more than a lot of the sales reps. They knew a lot. The CEOs would go in to talk to the cafe owners because they were the meeting spot for a lot of the information. So we looked at all of the above in the forms of people in terms of all the above was a big term for energy for a long time and it still should be today. And we looked at as people as well. So that was a different approach from the crude life and we chose to market that for a reason. And it worked very well because we were invited into parades, we got invited into barbecues, we were invited into schools, we got invited to tree planting events, and there wasn't a lot of other people from industry around at these events, so we felt very grateful to be invited to these and, and were accepted with open arms with a name like The Crude Life. I mean, that's pretty, pretty specific with what we do. So here's some conversations we've been having. For those of you folks who are wondering what is The Crude Life, we are a platform and we are a radio show. We've been on the radio since 2012. We're also a podcast. We've been doing podcasts since 2012 as well. We're also a print outlet as well. We do print for a number of magazines. We used to do for the Bismarck Tribune when they had an energy section. But currently, we've just been writing for a handful of magazines the last three or four years. And Oil Man Magazine specifically, we do a monthly column for them, as well as uh, a few other oil publications. Oil and Gas Monthly, I think, is another one. But these are some of the conversations that we are having. So the trade skills. The pipe fitters, the plumbers, and the welders are the deities and the demigods of, of the oil patch. I mean, these people are 
so sought after, and we talked about that for years, trying to get kids opened up to a new mindset that a four-year education might not be exactly what it is. And now they're talking about getting rid of like student loans for kids. Back then, we were talking about welding. We were talking about artificial intelligence, just some of these two-year trade schools that were really picking up. And we continue to have those conversations today. Energy innovation. Of course, anybody who works in the oil and gas industry knows that this is an oil boom, but it's really more of a technology boom. It's the technology that allows us to get the oil harvested from the ground. So although oil drives this, it's really a technology boom. So you're seeing some shift in the jobs and we're getting down, uh, shifting subsidies. I'll get back to that in a second because that's kind of a fun topic we talk about. But the big cruise shift, by the year 2022, that's next year, 75% of the industry will be new. So back in 2015, they started talking about how in the next 10 years, 70 to 80% of the industry is going to be retired and a whole new generation of people are going to be in here. And that was a really important topic to talk about because the generation that's coming up has a completely different education and respect for the industry. So there is a little bit of a vetting process that's going on across Shale Play USA to find out who has uh, got a little bit of a respect for the ag energy relationship that's been going on for the last hundred years. The oil and gas industry has spent a lot of money and a lot of resources and a lot of personal collateral building relationships and communities across the United States. And it's a real shame to see that being deteriorated in less than 10 years. So we've been trying to have those conversations still with people outside of the industry to kind of open up that a little bit so they can see the oil and gas industry in a different world, in a different light, if you will. Shifting subsidies, now this is kind of fun. In fact, we, ha we have Senator Kramer on our program quite a bit and a few other uh, senators from other states, but when you take a look at the wind and solar industry, all right, now I'm not here to demonize wind and solar. They do a fine job at that themselves. And what I mean by that is when you take a look at the body of work that wind and solar has done for the last 30 years, this is not a political statement. This is just a true statement. They have not hit any of the markers that they've set out to hit. This is their own milestones that they've set upon themselves. Keep in mind, we've got CEOs making quarter million dollars for 20, 30 years, not hitting the milestones, getting more government money, getting more subsidies, okay? My contention is quite simple, and, and I'm not, by the way, I'm a, like a libertarian at the core, so this is like the subsidy talk is a little bit blasphemy for me, but we try not to get too political on the crude life, but we've just wondered this question, what would a world look like if we shifted, say, 50% of the solar and wind subsidies to natural gas, okay? We got an abundance of natural gas, and if we, and we got a lot of smart, clever capitalists out there sleeping at well sites, checking monitors, some guys mining Bitcoin out there for crying out loud. So we got a lot of different ideas out there that in two years, if we shifted those subsidies, we could probably have some new super plastic and everybody could have a pool in their backyard for a thousand bucks. Who knows? Who knows? My point is, is that we don't even have a reclamation program for our wind energy yet and we're continuing to give them subsidies. That's a little bit bizarre to me. That's really bizarre to me. Okay, so the community building and the essence of capitalism, those are two things that kind of go together. 
And we were talking about this before we got up here on the air, or I got, got up here on the air, listen to me like I'm in mic mode here, before I got up here on stage. Um, the reason that I'm in the oil and gas industry, because remember, I'm in the media, really, at the end of the day. I'm in the communication industry. I'm not in the mining industry like all of you are. According to the government, I'm in the communication industry, but I follow the oil and gas industry primarily because of its capitalism roots. When you go and take a look at most industries, they're very well controlled, very well controlled, okay? The free market does not exist in a lot of other industries. Take technology, Apple computers. Steve Wozniak worked part-time at, at uh, Hewlett-Packard back in the late 70s and had to ask their permission to start Apple computers because the intellectual properties were so stringent back in the late 70s, early 80s, that he had to get permission, okay? So that's not a very free market. That's not a free market. The oil and gas industry has a market that still allows a man without a high school education working a rig to figure out a way to make a vibrating tube go twice as fast for twice as cheap. And not only will the oil and gas company not reverse engineer steal the idea, they'll be the first customer and allow that person who's got maybe a GED or a little bit of high school education or maybe a college education to go become a president of a company, a leader in the community, and have 20 employees within two years. That is incredible to me. And that's the reason I'm in this, this business to begin with. So when we're talking about the community building and the essence of capitalism, that's what we're talking about is the trickle down and the supporting of a community. Dickinson, Williston, Watford City, you guys know it better than anybody because you've seen how the oil and gas community has given back. Tiffany, you've seen firsthand from the Bakken barbecue how they've given back better than any other industry. And I'm not trying to demonize any other industry. I'm just calling it like it is. So when we take a look at the energy infrastructure, I do want to bring in, okay, we don't have that in there, but that's okay. So the, the need for critical infrastructure. My understanding was there was another explosion earlier today in Texas. And that is going to bring up some conversations now for the oil and gas industry. And this is a very good opportunity to bring up the need for pipelines. And what is baffling again to me is how we've got protesters and how we've got this national conversation against pipelines when it's critical infrastructure. At the end of the day, it's, it's critical infrastructure. So your elected leaders, and I've had a lot of conversations with our elected leaders about this. They should be promoting this critical infrastructure, not defending it. They should be on the offense because this is critical infrastructure at the end of the day. We need this for our day to day and it's part of our everyday. Okay, hang on. Apologize here, folks, trying to do a few things and get to the next. All right, this next one I want to talk about here is something we've been talking about lately and this is a bit odd and we're going to get, we're, we're going to, get to it. But do you all remember Pangea? Does everybody remember Pangea? Okay. Well, that was a time when Pangea was together, and then slowly through earth changes, through earth changes, we have what we have today. So there wasn't a lot of oil and gas companies around back when Pangea first came out. But what this is, is this a story of consensus science, because there was a, there was a scientist who came up with the theory of Pangea, and he was demonized to the point to when he died, his theory was not accepted as science because a group of scientists decided that he was not right and they did not like his theory. 
It wasn't until World War II when we were able to take a look at some of the, uh, the, play, or the uh, trenches in the oceans when we realized that he was correct. But what that is, is that's a story of consensus science defeating regular science. Now keep in mind, science is constantly asking questions. If you don't allow science to move on, that's not real science. And that's where we're at right now with the world of the climate change conversation, is this is consensus science that seems to be taking over. So there was a time when flat earth was consensus science. There was a time when Pangea was. Did you know the theory of relativity was not even considered real for a while? That Albert Einstein, when he came up with the theory of relativity, that was not considered real science for a while. And all Einstein said was, it takes one person to prove me wrong. And no one ever did. It takes one person to prove me wrong, and no one ever did. So then it became regular science. Well, then we had global cooling global warming, and then we had probiotics in there because that guy actually got demonized beyond belief. Well, then it turned out probiotics was real. And now it's like one of the biggest industries alive. I think my socks have probiotics in it, so it works out good. Well, then global cooling and global warming became climate change, and then it just became the Green New Deal. So this is kind of an evolution of how consensus science can really take on a whole new way of its own. So I just wanted to point that out before we get to our next slide here. So the reason I held this one up here is because I spoke on this four years ago in Colorado. And then I spoke three years ago in Wyoming on this. And I didn't change this slide one bit. And the reason I didn't change this slide was because of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Back when I gave this speech, they were the only two people that were really talking about oil and gas in a negative light. AOC was not around yet. The Green New Deal was just kind of on a local level. But really, when you take a look at what's been going on here, what's happening is that this climate activism is turned into almost like a cult. And by cult, I'm talking anthropologically speaking from my education at North Dakota State University. I'm not talking about a political statement. I'm just talking about if I were to pull out the old dictionary and take a look at it, because the way it's being approached is it's very inviting to feel. Very, you walk outside, you can feel with the environment. So it's a very slippery slope for a lot of people, and it's something that the oil and gas industry is not used to. Very technical industry. Very purposeful industry. Very purposeful industry. Think about that for a second. Texas just went through what they went through. That makes oil and gas workers get up and go to the morning. Get, get up and go to work in the morning because it's a purposeful job to know that you're bringing heat to somebody, you're keeping somebody fed. It's a very, it's a very purposeful thing. And so to be attacked at it from a non-scientific approach, I don't think that's positive. I think the, the environment needs to be ta tackled at a very sterile scientific approach. And right now it's being attacked at a very story-based Really, at the end of the day, you know, you're talking about a 16 and she's 18 now, but they've got a mascot and it's a child. And so that's, that's, that's difficult to go against if you're somebody trying to just promote the regular way of life, because this is what's been going on over the last 10 years. It's really remarkable because when I got into this industry, plastic bags and straws were really the debate, occasional gas prices. Now we got the president of the United States trying to ban the industry. And I understand it's just a federal ban, but it's just step one. Really, it is step one. When you talk to a lot of people, they, they see where it's going. So 
Okay, so let's get to the realm of reality because at the end of it, really, what's happening is more people are acting with emotion than they are facts. So what have we done? Well, long before the Sierra Club and long before Greta Thunberg came along, the oil and gas industry and the energy industry as a whole has been decarbonizing for 150 years on its own. No idea why all of a sudden we have to get on this crash course. It's very expensive, and it also takes, takes away a lot of our liberties. So when you take a look at, we've got the hydrocarbons on the side and the ratios there, and right here is coal. And you can see the darker circles are the dirty carbon and the light circles are the glorious hydrogen molecules. But when we take a look at, when we started out 150 years ago, we were burning wood and hay. Okay, and then we went to whales. We almost extinct a species of animals. Then we went to coal and oil, and now we're at natural gas, which is down to one to four hydrocarbons, depending on which one you're looking at. I think there's a couple that might get into the six, seven, but it's pretty damn good. It's pretty good. When you take a look at what's going on here, I have yet to see any verified report that has been verified by a third party that shows me that any renewable, and by the way, renewable is a political term, any renewable source of energy is actually less, less than any one of those natural gas ones right there. There's a lot that goes into renewables that are not discussed. When you take a look at natural gas, that's just coming out of the ground naturally in a lot of places, especially in western Wyoming and western Colorado and western North Dakota. Um, it's, it's a pretty clean source of energy, very reliable and it's something that I think is, should not be as demonized, really. So renewable energy is a political term. Uh, you know, nuclear is considered re renewable, but that's never in the conversation. Uh, hydro is considered renewable. That's never in the conversation. So when we're talking about renewable, that is a very political term. In fact, it's a way to get a lot of uh, subsidy dollars. And it's all like in, in health when uh, for a long time, and if, if you were going to fight anything outside of cancer you couldn't get any government money you had to you had to kind of go with what they were their war on was diabetes for a while and then it was cancer for a while that's kind of along the same lines there um, but we, we have been decarbonizing long before the sierra club came along or greta thunberg and i really think that's important for people to understand that that this has been a natural process that's happening we were even talking about when the big disasters happen okay Exxon Valdez, for example, okay, that's, that's, that was a terrible, terrible black mark on the industry. But what happened? Double tankers came out of it, had some membranes, uh, some, some more automation that came out of it. The BP spill happened. We got some more safety regulations. Every now and then, things do happen. But it's how the industry responds that's remarkable. I have not seen any other industry respond like that, and that, that includes ag. Okay, ag is a very dangerous industry, and they have never responded like the oil and gas industry. So, okay, I'm going to get to the next one here. So here's some other things to consider, too. Now, it's very difficult to have a conversation with somebody who's talking about the environment. Again, because you're having a factual conversation with an emotional person. And you can hand them a study, and it's like a turd sandwich. They don't care. It's just they look at it like they don't want anything to do with it. But here's some other interesting parts to consider. So 
there's been no climate science model that has ever been proven for 10 years. If we don't know what the future is going to be in 10 years, how do we know it in 100 years? So why are we giving trillions of dollars away and giving our liberties away when we don't even know this? We're talking about the future here. That's unverified. Climate studies, they're not verified by independent parties. If this was a, a company on the stock market, you couldn't buy it. You couldn't buy climate change. You couldn't buy global warming or global cooling because they won't let you see the information. There's no verified information on this. Sun and land. There's a lot of science that indicates the sun is connected to the earth. And so when something happens on the sun, it happens on the earth. And so therefore, a lot of the science that is into climate change may be bunk at that point. We don't know. There's just more science that's constantly being brought into the equation. Land use, deforestation, urban land use. That's a huge one. How we, how we build our cities, where we build our cities. We were having a conversation earlier that they're just finding out now these solar panels they're building in the desert are starting to change the ecosystem. It's Yellowstone all over again. And for you folks out there that don't know about Yellowstone, do your research on Yellowstone and see how America handles environment, okay? We about decimated and screwed that park over where we were dumping raw sewage out of that thing, okay? And they had free reign. They had free reign, okay? Nobody stood in their way to do anything. They about eliminated the elk. They about eliminated the bears. Then they about eliminated some of the native flora because the elk got reintroduced at record numbers and a bunch of different things. So they thought they knew best and they don't understand. Same thing is happening right now. We're trying to put all these wind turbines in there. They're finding out in Germany now that the insect population and the bird population are going down in record numbers in all the places where wind turbines are, which is having a big impact on the crops. Bats, birds, and insects pollinate crops. And they, they control a lot of the pests, too. So they're finding that uh, out as well. Uh, Alton Chase, by the way, Alton Chase is the author by the Yellowstone book. If anybody wants to check that out, it's a fantastic book on just how we have bad policy, bad policy, just bad policy at the end of the day. You know, and then there's humans love catastrophes. And this is, you know, we have Y2K and Mad Cow and SARS, peak oil, COVID. I've done this for 10 years. This is fun. 10 years ago, I would be at a dinner party. People would say, how's it going? And I'd, eh, everything's fine. Pretty soon, people are bored with that. Nobody wanted to talk to me. Eh, there's nothing exciting going on. Now people are mad. What do you mean everything's fine? And then they tell me 15 reasons why I should be upset. So I just kind of did it to see how people respond. And now people are upset if you're doing well or if you're doing fine. They, they want you to be mad. So it's interesting. People just line up for the catastrophes. Uh, mandating lifestyle impacts is a very big thing here. We had Senator Kramer on our program uh, last week. We also had on, I'm trying to think who, who's the, uh, uh, someone out of Texas. It was either, anyway, but, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Wyoming governor, Mark Gordon, they both said the same thing, which is this whole climate movement is more about mandating a lifestyle than anything else. And whether they were right or wrong, I listened, and I'm definitely paying attention to it. And I think a lot of people should, because when they start monitoring uh, energy rations and how much your toaster can use in the morning and things like that, it's, it's, it's a different world.
Sometimes I get talking too much. By the way, if anybody has a question or disagrees or wants me to, I'm just trying to move through quickly here. Okay, so what we were talking about before and what we've been doing at The Crude Life is we're trying to reimagine and reinvent energy to try to connect on a new way because apparently facts don't work. Kids don't want to hear different things. So we're just trying a bunch of different ways to connect. So we've done a lot with the kids. We've done some th different ideas when it comes to uh, different approaches. We've got a morning show now. We'll get to that in a bit. But the one that I, I absolutely think is hilarious is right here. This is a team out in the East Coast called the Frackers. So they're a minor league baseball team called the Frackers. No idea if it worked or not, but good for them. They're trying something different. It's a way to connect in a new way. It's getting people excited. We have a mascot now at the Crude Life. It's a dog called Frackleberry Hound. And boy, people smile. Kids are smiling, adults smile, and it's nice to see people smile when they hear that word. So here's, here's how we look at reimagining and reinventing reality. So first of all, understand there is a paradigm shift going on in oil and gas. This has been talked about now for 10 years. We went through this in the media when the internet came. And to understand a paradigm shift, just take a look at a newspaper, okay? Your local newspaper, the Fargo Forum. You're with the newspaper, right? Okay. I was too. So I, I, got, I was in magazines and publishing, so I got hit. I, I invested over a quarter million dollars in the internet, didn't get back five bucks. But killed my business. Actually did kill that business. But problem is with newspapers, they had a hundred year monopoly in a lot of towns. A hundred years they had a monopoly. In 10 years after the internet came around, a lot of them went bankrupt. Okay? That's a paradigm shift, folks. That is a paradigm shift, okay? So when you've got John Gibson from One Oak coming on The Crude Life talking about the paradigm shift, you got Harold Hamm talking about the paradigm shift, I'm listening. James Volker from Whiting, I'm listening. So what does that mean? Well, a number of different things. Just starting the human resources department, okay? Human resources, paradigm shift, what does that mean? Well, back in the old days, a guy could go from Alaska over to Marcellus and rob and pillage and be a Viking of old and no one would know it. Now they know that before the interview's done. They know that. They know all about you before you even go into the interview. That's a paradigm shift, folks. That's just in the HR department. Now imagine what they've done on the well site with some of the innovations that have happened. I mentioned earlier, it's a technology boom. That's what's happening. A lot of the jobs are shifting. You're going from roughnecks to coders. You're going from different things, you know, not in all the places, but in some. That's part of that paradigm shift. Engage with outside people. That seems pretty obvious because they use energy every day. What we've done with kids is we took them to a concert first, and then on the back end, we taught them the energy. Talked about the volume in the concert and talked about how the, the strings were made and talked about the different uh, instruments and how they got transported. And just they, they never, their minds never worked in that way before in terms of a guitar could be broken down into 47 different parts of petroleum products. Well, it made the car ride home at least tolerable for me. Kids might have thought it was boring, but at least I thought it was fun. Social media activism has gotten on a whole new... By the way, folks, I, I don't know about you, but I'm about done with Bill Gates. And what I mean by that is he's an expert on everything now. You, you, you go to any website, and they're getting his opinion on everything everything and that that just opens up 
the social media activism like you wouldn't believe because now they got somebody they can quote. They got a source that they can quote. That's what I do in the media. That's what I try to do. I try to quote sources, but we try to bring experts on. You tell me how Bill Gates is an expert in the Texas grid. No idea, but he got more headlines than the Texas governor in a lot of cases. All right, so let's take a look at what we're doing here differently than I guess we were doing before because we're talking about reinventing energy. Well, we've added a morning show now. We're doing two things different this year. One is the morning show. Why a morning show? Well, number one is we wanted a safe place, a fun place, and some place for industry to come every day, every day. Right now, I'll tell you how this happened, okay? So I'm, I'm on the phone with somebody down in Texas, because, by the way, folks, we're on about 30 radio stations across five states. We also have about 350,000 social media followers between Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and a bunch of different uh, platforms like that. If you go to thecrudelife.com, you can listen to our shows, our interviews there. You can check out our social media pages there as well. But why do we have a morning show? Okay, number one, we wanted to be the first thing that people did in the morning. So we did that. Number two, everybody has a podcast now. I was actually on the phone with someone kind of ranting and raving a little bit about how the government just funded everybody to have a podcast. Because no nonprofit could do an event last year, they did a podcast. Because so-and-so couldn't do an event last year, so they did a podcast. And so everybody who got all this, this money to sit at home well, they did a podcast, okay? So I was like, this is interesting. This is the fourth time in my professional career the government has funded my competition, but they've actually created my competition now. This is a whole, totally different. So I'm talking to some people in Texas about this, and they were going to start a podcast, and they were actually crunching the numbers and realizing how much it actually costs in labor and at the end of the day. And I said, well, how, how often are you going to do it? And they said, well, weekly. And I go, why weekly? Well, that's what they tell you to do. And I said, weekly? Well, Ron Burgundy has one now, the fictional actor. I go, if you're not daily, you're, you're, you're competing with Ron Burgundy. And I go, in fact, I'm pretty sure I've got six in my neighborhood. And I walked onto my back deck. I started pointing at houses in my backyard and six of them with an eyesight. My neighbor works for Microsoft. He works in a, he's got a band on the weekend, so they've got a podcast. The guy across the way, he's a big political nut. He's got a podcast. The other guy's got a video game one. I was like, are you kidding me? Everybody's got one now. So we had to go to the daily to separate ourselves from everybody else. And what does that mean? Well, we have a platform now for people just to talk because energy's different. Energy's hard, it's technical, it's kind of dry, and it's very specific. So if you're selling a $600,000 generator, there's literally 20 people in this nation that is your customer, and that's it. There's not many other people that can get a $600,000 generator on a wet gas shale play, because that doesn't work in the dry gas shale play, okay? So it's a different kind of, kind of a thing there with the energy industry. So the other reason why we did this morning show was so that some of those $600,000 generator guys had a shot of somebody listening to the interview. Because if somebody's at a pick to listen to a podcast, you really got to stand out because they got a lot of options, including Ron Burgundy. 
including entertainment podcasts that are out there and radio shows and other outfits. So what we did is we did the work hard, play hard. I'm sorry, the play hard, work hard, because that's oil and gas. Oil and gas knows how to play hard better than anybody I've ever seen. They also know how to work hard better than anybody I've ever seen. So it makes sense. During that first hour, we just have a blast. Anything goes. Don't care. Second hour, that's when usually the politicians come on, and a lot of the presidents and CEOs, and a lot of serious talk. Oil and gas is very serious. Texas showed that. Oil and gas is extremely serious. But at the same time, we have to have fun. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to connect with the average person. So that's what we're doing different this year. The other thing that we're doing is very exciting, and it's environmental. It's called the industrial forest because it takes an industry to build a forest. Over the last 20 years, over half the trees that have been planted in the United States have died by nonprofits and by city, municipality planning, planting groups. They've killed the trees because they don't water them every day for three years and then for two years after that. So what we're doing is we're doing an industrial forest, okay? We had to change the mission a little bit. We got a little aggressive fast. We wanted to do five years. We wanted to get it done, but now we're on seven years. Reality set set in, but we've got two states we're starting with that have committed to it. North Dakota's one, and the other one is Texas. Now, this is going to be very exciting because we're going to use industry to correct another problem. This is another problem in environmentalists, which we don't allow in our program anymore. We say climate activists, but they have created a problem because they go and plant a tree, take an Instagram photo, and leave it. Well, then it dies. It actually causes more problems, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to build a sustainability shed with industry. We're going to build a shed right in the middle of the forest with a critical pipeline system. A critical pipeline system so that these trees get water every day for three years and then another two after that for a week, a week, a year, week, week, once a week for a year. We've got some people down in Texas that want to in, implement some drones now into this whole thing because we're going to create a information share system among this network. We've got the mayor of Bismarck has signed on board and we're meeting with the forestry department next week. And now the state of North Dakota wants to be on board too with this. So the mayor's setting that up as well. So what we're gonna do is industry will sponsor a tree. We've got these stone engraved markers that the logo gets put on next to the tree for 20 years whatever, 30 years, however long the tree lives. In the city of Bismarck is going to be a micro-industrial forest so that people can walk through and they can sit and enjoy this forest, but also be educated. We're talking about a big old piece of lignite coal when you walk in. Printed, laser printed, that tells a story in the industrial forest. That was the mayor's idea in Bismarck. He, he wants to do that. So, uh, And then Midland, Odessa... We're working with Brooks, Brooks Landgraf. He's the uh, state rep down there. We've got a company that wants to use recycled frack water to water trees in the middle of the desert. How cool is that going to be? Okay. We're going to have a shade. I don't know if anybody's been down to Midland, Odessa. There's two trees. That's it. There's two trees. And it's in the double tree, I think. But it's terrible. And so what we're talking about doing is actually putting a park in the middle of Midland and Odessa with trees that is watered with recycled frack water. 
Now, that is industry solving a major problem right there. So this, this is what we've got started right here. The industrialforest.com is the website. And here's how it's broken down, is that we are going to buy trees that are a couple years old, probably three, four years old, so they have some size to them. There is a planting party where the actual community comes out and plants, so the kids are involved. But here's kind of a breakdown because we're turning around and paying people. We're not asking for tree donations. No, people need to be paid right now. People need to be paid right now. So we want to take that money and turn around and pay people. We want to pay artists that are engraving the stone, the industrial mixed media artists, that sort of thing. So that's how we're trying to con combat this whole environmental thing by creating a carbon capturing solution by also using industry to solve another problem that has been created by bad policy. And we're gonna do it in a very fun way that's gonna be, we call it rooted marketing, because your, your marketing creates roots and it sticks around for 20, 30 years. So, wanted to kind of get going. I just noticed I'm way over on time, so I do apologize. I'm trying to put 20 pounds of potatoes in a five pound sack, so I apologize. Tonight's message, I, I wanted to walk away with just letting you guys know about the paradigm shift. It is happening, it is real. I went through it in the media before, where we, we had to change our business model four or five times. You talk to an oil and gas company right now, they're changing their business model all the time. Just right now, trying to figure out new smart pigs, new carbon ca capturing ways. Uh, you know, the, the well pads were going from 14 million down to 7 million. So they're, they're changing their business models constantly. Big data, big changes. That's pretty self-explanatory. Redesign, rebuild, reimagine. The cult of environmentalism, again, that is from an anthropological uh, definition, not an editorialized one. I did want to bring up the essence of capitalism, the community building, and then take control of the narrative. Just take control of the narrative again. And the way that we're doing that at The Crude Life is we're no longer using the word environmentalist. I've adopted a highway in 2004, okay? I was an environmentalist back in 2004. Okay, I'm vegan for a long time to where I didn't eat meat. So I, I was a very big environmentalist who loved the oil and gas industry. So I will no longer allow the word environmentalist to be used in that way. We say climate activist, climate activist, because really the oil and gas industry is some of the best environmentalists I know. In the same way, a lot of hunters are some of the best conservationists I know. And that's what I mean by taking control of the narrative again. Don't, don't, re, don't allow this reaction to happen. Because the more we react, the more they're going to continue to ban these types of things. And I, listen, the oil and gas industry probably doesn't need my help, but I need theirs. We need help reaching out to these people outside of the industry who are getting influenced by popular culture and by teachers. There are so many teachers out there right now editorializing on a regular basis. It, 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 it's kind of sickening, actually. It kind of is. But um, that's, I, I don't want to editorialize, so I do apologize for that. But folks, does anybody have any questions or anything? I've just been talking for a half hour straight and I kind of, 40 minutes now that I'm looking at it, so I apologize. But uh, that's all I got today, I guess. I, I, it's, it's kind of a dull ending, I guess, but. Uh. Exclusive interview industry news, environmental innovation at thecrudelife.com. Oh, well,
music heard on the Crude Life Morning Show, Play Hard, Work Hard, is by the Moody River With Jason Speece. Thank you for joining the program today. You know, I, I come from an oil background. My family's been in the oil and gas industry for 60 years. I, I think the thing with the younger generation is the younger generation has pretty much bought into the climate change phenomenon. They really believe everything that people tell them. We just want to thank everybody that has been so supportive of us, and especially you, Jason. Without without your help, I don't think our event would be as successful as it is. So I, I don't want to be real critical of them because being a guy who's, you know, dad has several small businesses and, and coming from that sort of small business background, I get it. I mean, the, the, the operators here were put in a real bad position by the state of North Dakota. I'm glad that we've got people like you to pay attention and bring us information on stuff like this. Prices can't go any lower for services. I, I, they're, they're too low right now. I, our margins are in the single percentage point if we're lucky, and we're not lucky that often. You're exactly right. ESG is becoming more and more important to shareholders. I can speak for my 20 companies. They take it very serious. It makes perfect sense, and I thought you had a really good show last week. Jason, I love your inquisitive questions because you you ask important questions that, that lead to the most important truths. Hey, this is Kevin Kramer representing proudly the state of North Dakota in the United States Senate. I'm Jason Spies, who's like the best energy interviewer in the world. No one does an interview like Jason Spies. We all like living the crude life, so. <laughs> the Crude Life with host Jason Spies. My name is Jason Spies, and this is the Crude Life Daily Update. On today's episode, we talk with Colorado State Senator Ray Scott as he gives an overview of why Weld County, Colorado is talking about succeeding into the state of Wyoming. This is Colorado State Senator Ray Scott. And I kind of go back to a conversation I had with Secretary Perry up in a conference we were at in Salt Lake City a couple years ago, and Governor Herbert was there also from Utah. And we were having this little chat about Texas in general, and uh, Secretary Perry was telling us, and it was fascinating, he was telling us a story about their nuclear power plants. And what was happening at that time in Texas is they were producing so much power, and they had shifted their grid around so much that the nuclear, which is obviously the cleanest form of producing energy, was literally having to sell the power below their cost to even keep it on the grid. And, and he even said back then, a couple of years ago, that they were so far out of balance in Texas that you know they were heading for some type of a disaster. You know, who who knew it was going to be a snowstorm in Texas? But you know, here we are. Um, and again, I think it points so much to the unreliable nature of solar and wind. You know, I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd want to be in a hospital in Dallas, Texas on a on life support and know that wind energy is going to be my source of keeping that machine running, right? Uh, a little scary to, to, at the least. But, you know, and I think the other thing it points to is these folks within that unreliable sector that have said, oh, well, we wanted all of the above energies. That's not, that, obviously, that's not true at all. Uh, they, they don't. They, they do believe that we can just have 100%. You know, the other interesting fact, too, is, you know, the battery storage that they're touting that they're coming up with. Well, I, I read something the other day where the entire United States could only last something like 14 minutes on the storage that's available today. That's it. 
they are so far behind the curve on getting the storage, the battery storage, uh, in place to be even be able to handle a, a, the in, you know the most minute degree of storage for a case like what happened in Texas. To listen to the full-length interview with Colorado State Senator Ray Scott or to check out other exclusive interviews, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. While you're there, be sure to join our ever-growing army of energy enthusiasts by joining our social media pages. Click on the social media tab for our YouTubes, our LinkedIn's, our Tweeters, Twitters, you name it. We have it right there at thecrudelife.com. From the staff here at the Crude Life Daily Update, my name is Jason Spies, asking you to always remember, energy is more than an industry, it's a way of life. The Crude Life is sponsored in part by... It takes an industry to build a forest. Hey folks, Jason Spies with The Crude Life. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out theindustrialforest.com. That's theindustrialforest.com. The music heard on the Crude Life Morning Show, Play Hard, Work Hard, is by the Moody River Band. Interested in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com.